Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, someone who had to sit there with student Yellen and straighten her out. Joseph Stiglitz joins us, the Nobel laureate from Columbia University. Joe Stiglitz, what was Cheryl Yellen like as a student? She was great. She was one of the best students I, I had. Uh, she was one of my students in the very beginning of my teaching. Well, and she, she lived up to her promise. And I, I'll say uh, the least, probably she taught you some things while she was your student <laughs> as well. She was that uh, acclaimed without questions through all of her uh, work. Joe Stiglitz, I want to dovetail in here the political season with the economics at hand. Joe Biden is a certain kind of Democrat. If he takes the trophy, can the Democratic Party find a middle ground, a common voice with the rest of America to actually pass legislation and make policy? Oh, absolutely. I believe actually there's a broad consensus in America on a whole wide range of issues. And I think Biden is is uh, in a position to create that middle ground to get that uh, common agenda uh, uh, adopted. For instance, uh, we're concerned, everybody's concerned about healthcare, the cost of healthcare, uh, access to healthcare. Uh, the proposal of a public option is uh, a good way of getting it well, to everybody. Joe, you're looking at this with your new book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Joe, you brought that word. You brought our Steinbeck over to the American economic uh, mind with discontent. This discontent now is absolutely extraordinary. What can a legitimate Biden policy accomplish? What's the first order condition you see? The first order is getting the economy going again. And Janet was absolutely right. There is right now a need for fiscal support, uh, especially uh, at the bottom. You know, people talk about a K-shaped recovery. It's absolutely true. Those at the bottom are having a very hard time. Uh, the unemployment rate uh, among uh certain groups of the population are very elevated. Uh, so uh, that's one thing. But there are certain sectors of the economy that are ba badly afflicted, and they need assistance. For instance, I'm in one of those, the education sector, research sector. And those are sectors that are going to be vital to the country's future. If we let those uh, weaken, we're not going to have uh, we're going to have a weak economy now, but we're going to have an even weaker economy in the future. One thing we've been talking a lot about, Professor Stiglitz, in the past few months has been GDP and how it's going to go down dramatically on the heels of the pandemic. And you were recently quoted in a Bloomberg article about how this is not a great measure of people's well-being. You also said high prices in the stock market are an even worse indicator of societal well-being. Focusing on the wrong things can lead to taking the wrong actions. What wrong actions have we been taking up till now? Well, at the, the focus on the stock market really is perverse because we know underlying the growth in the stock market are a few companies, uh, Silicon Valley, the digital giants have been doing very well uh, as a result of their monopoly power, uh, people going in the stock market because interest rates are so low, 
returns of bonds are so low that they're piling into the stock market and wages are not doing very well and that helps the stock market. But all those are things that are weakening our economy. So it's almost perverse. Uh, the strong stock market uh, is almost a sign that things are not going well in other parts of the economy. So precisely, we need to focus on the role of market power in our economy, the low wages, uh, the fact that at the bottom wages are the same as they were 65 years ago, adjusted for inflation. Uh, and most importantly, uh, we need the aggregate demand going up so that the economy, so that their jobs uh, are there for, uh, for all Americans. And that won't happen uh, if we don't have that fiscal stop stimulus that Janet was talking about yesterday. This is an incredibly important point, the idea that the prices on stocks could actually be evidence of something counter to what may be the healthiest for the underlying economy. Do you think that the response from the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury Department and Congress has actually increased the disparity in access to funding for small and larger companies at a time when we see unprecedented bankruptcies among smaller businesses? Well, that's actually... Uh, 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 very many aspects of what you just raised. Um, there was a program created at the very beginning called PPP that was intended to get money to small businesses, but it was very badly administered uh, and it did work. It got money to the richest of the small businesses, many of whom were owned by very, very rich people. Uh, so the intent was perhaps good but the way it was executed by the Trump administration and uh, by the banks, quite frankly, uh, was a disaster. <clears throat> but more broadly, the monetary policies that we've conducted since the great financial crisis, 2008, of keeping interest rates very low has stimulated the growth and the value of equities. And the equities are overwhelmingly owned by the people in the top 10%, top 1%, top one-tenth of 1%. And it's absolutely unambiguous that that monetary well, policy has increased wealth inequalities. Joe Stiglitz, I was talking with our Sally Bakewell, who's really, really looking at the great divide that we see on the streets of New York, or frankly, I think across any of this nation, of small business flat on their back. We have financialized the world. There's no question we've done that for the benefit of the up, upper X percent or others. How do we get back to it? How do we escape and definancialize in a constructive way? Well, I think, first of all, we have to uh, uh, do two things, uh, three things. Uh, we have to rewrite the rules of the market economy. There's too much market power at the top. We talked about it in terms of the Silicon Valley giants, but there's a lot more uh, throughout the economy. We've uh, weakened the market power, bargaining power of workers, and that has contributed to inequality. Uh, we have rules that have led to the excessive financialization that you talked about uh, before. Secondly, we have a tax system where those at the very top actually pay a smaller percentage of their income than those down below. You know, Warren Buffett actually complained about it, saying, uh, you know, it was wrong that he was paying a lower tax rate than his secretary. There are a, a lot of wealthy people who recognize 
that this is actually bad for our economy and morally Yeah, but Joe, wrong. Joe, I mean, if you sum up the taxes that the rich guys are paying, it's a pretty high marginal bracket. It may not be, you know, Rockefeller 72% and all that. But if we sum, if we sum every tax up, it's there. How do we de-financialize and deploy capital to people starving for capital. Apple Computer is not starving for capital. They can get any billions they want. What about the small business person on a corner in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Well, that's where we we have to refocus our banking system. You know, banks were always at the center of providing capital to small, uh, medium-sized businesses. You know, if you're a small business, you don't go uh, raise money on the capital market. Uh, you go to your bank. Yep. And the problem is that the banks over the last 30 years have focused their attention on things <clears throat> like issuing derivatives, CDSs, uh, trading uh, uh, commodities. Uh, they found a lot more lucrative ways of making money. Some of it actually market manipulation. So if we stop some of their bad activities, market manipulation, predatory lending, and encourage them to do yeah. what their mandate is, which is lending to small businesses, I think it, it would actually uh, create much more opportunity. I mean, Lisa, country. this is the heart of the matter. I'm just old enough, unlike the ancient Stiglitz, who really, really remembers this out of Gary, Indiana. But Lisa, there actually was a time where you did business with your local bank or maybe the regional bank. Yeah, and, and it's evaporated. And actually, the regional banks, uh, anecdotally, have been pulling back on credit. Professor Stiglitz, I'm not going to refer to your tenure uh, or, you know, in terms of teaching or anything uh, that Tom was talking about in terms of ancient history. I will say, though, going forward, how does the economic profession, how do you as a Nobel laureate get your voice heard to the degree that it needs to be heard by policymakers who say economists have gotten it wrong numerous times? Why should we follow a theory? when free market economics has led to the power of the United States over the long term? What actually hasn't been free market economics has led to the success. Uh, if you look at all the innovations that have been the basis of U.S. success, all those innovations have been supported by the government. Uh, you know, the Internet, uh, the advances in medicine that we're all looking for, uh, who did the research that led to DNA? Who did the research that led to all the major advances in biology? It's the government. So one of the things I call for in my book, People, Power, and Profits, is recognize, recognizing the success of the United States has in the past been based on a balance yeah. between the market, the government, and civil society. We lost that balance beginning with Reagan uh, that said the government was the problem. We now in this pandemic have seen that an ill-prepared government uh, is not there when we need it. And uh, I think the strongest argument for uh, what I call for in my book, People, Power and Profits, for a new social contract with a new balance has been precisely the failures that we've just seen uh, well. in this pandemic. Just tickets, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much, and particularly thank you for your comments on Chair Yellen uh, early in this good discussion. The laureate from Columbia out with a new book uh, on people power and uh, profits. 
Joining us now, Amy Wu Silverman, RBC Capital Markets Equity Derivative Strategist. Amy, fantastic to get you with us on the program. Two weeks away from an election. It's your world. Volatility was so elevated a number of weeks ago. Then people faded it. Then we came back a little bit more. What's the approach now, Amy? Yeah, it's uh, it's been fascinating to watch because, as you said, I think the last time we spoke, uh, the options market was clearly pricing a contested and protracted election with uncertainty very high in December. That's completely gone away now. And, and to be quite honest, the options market is pricing a fairly boring term structure, which always makes me a little bit nervous with, you know, two weeks to go until a pretty major event happening. Uh, if I do say, I think at this point, we're probably underpricing the likelihood that you get that protracted contested election. And we're also pricing a tail event, which is that Trump actually wins the election. Right. Obviously, the polls say that those are less likely. Um, but remember, those tails have become fatter in 2020 uh, than I would say in other years. Uh, Amy, some of the measurements here, Chris Verone was on the great technician uh, the other day with Strategus, and he was really talking about the breadth of this market improving. Do you see that on a fundamental basis? I do. And, you know, I think there's two things that sort of happened in August. We had unbelievably narrow breadth. It was really just all tech. Um, you know, two things changed coming. The first is people started putting on more macro hedges just simply because we have a U.S. election, but also just because we're coming into year end. So most people who are doing well in their portfolios are putting on overall market hedges. And the second is, you know, as we head into earnings season, people are playing names other than obviously they're still playing facebook amazon what have you but they're also playing other names so we do have improvement in breadth which obviously helps with some of the correlations we're seeing uh, on the index levels i want to build on something that you said amy you said that we are currently probably underpricing the risk of a contested election just how contested does that election have to be before it roils the market and how significant could the sell-off be yeah, two, two great questions. So the, the time frame that the options market was obsessed with was call it November 20th through December 18th. So that's the, the period of time between the two options expiries. We saw that, uh, you know, three to four volatility points fully elevated uh, relative to everything else. And now that's completely come down to, to the point where it's actually under November. Um, so, you know, th that tells us that people are not focused on that December 14th date where the state electors are supposed to submit their ballots. That's the time frame originally, Lisa, that people were very, very worried about. So call it, you know, after election by, you know, four weeks. Um, and then look, in terms of downside, the bets we are seeing placed has the market down, you know, at least 5%, but more down to 10%. So those are the hedges. Those are the strikes of the hedges that we are seeing placed in the market right now. So let's talk about how you invest around this, Amy. I think for a lot of people outside of Wall Street, whenever the Amy Wu Silvermans, the Julian Emanuels, the Mandy Zoos come on, people get confused by the language, the jargon you guys use about this market. Volatility, you know the story. Can you advise people outside of that world what on earth they're meant to do going into the back end of this year? Sure. I, you know, I think it's just to think of it this way. The first is I would just think of it as there is there is downside concern. That, that is building and we see that in hedges being placed, but not nearly to the extent that we would expect given this environment and given this event. So basically the market is not 
as well prepared as it normally is for these kind of downside events. And the second is obviously if you are looking to place a bet to the downside yourself, buying put options, something straightforward where you're protecting against that downside, it's still relatively inexpensive because the option market prices for that type of protection has declined in the last few weeks and has made it cheaper to do that. Amy, if I look at SOAP, Procter & Gamble is a proxy for boring within blue chip multinationals. It's a wonderful log linear trend for 10 years. And then like a moonshot, P&G goes straight up. They've got a three to at best 4% dividend growth, yet they're trading at a 27 multiple. Is that in the textbooks you studied? Yeah, you know, look, I there look, a lot of things that have happened in this market I have learned are not in the textbooks I study. One of my professors was Burton Malkiel who wrote a random walk down yeah, Wall Street good. and you know, <laughs> he's he's really good, but you know, he he taught us about the efficient market hypothesis at Princeton and then I got into Wall Street and I said Markets aren't that efficient, unfortunately. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, John, this is a really important observation by Ms. Silverman here. The idea, the idea, we forget, John, about where these valuations are. And yes, some have maximum revenue growth or maybe Apple profitability. But, you know, boring stuff, John, whether in London or in America, is just priced to perfection now. We've never seen this. Well, there's a reason for that with some of these brands. And Lisa, I know you can speak to this. It was always about the brands that you recognize and everyone just ran towards them in the pandemic. I caught up with PepsiCo and the CFO about this a number of months ago. And that was really the story, brand recognition and the gravitation of the consumer towards the brands they recognize at a time of stress. How sticky that demand is. I think we're about to find out, Lisa. Yeah, and I really find it fascinating, a social study in terms of how people respond to a pandemic. Lysol sales, absolutely on fire. And the company that makes them, Benkiser, is sort of a similar story to what we saw uh, with Procter & Gamble, up more than 22%. People want clean homes, and they're going to be obsessive about it. Amy Will Silverman of RBC, great to catch up. Amy, thanks for being with us. A couple of weeks away from an election. There's any number of ways to go with Isaac Poltansky. He's at Compass Point, writes cute, cute notes uh, on what's going on. I do want to focus, Isaac, on something that's in every interview, which is the outcome of a blue president but a continued red Senate. What will gridlock look like under a Biden presidency? So I think there are two main points to make in to that. Number one is, Uh, it would be far more difficult for President Biden in that scenario to actually get his nominees through a Republican Senate. And so a lot of the regulatory agenda that my clients have focused on, whether that's energy, the environment, health care, financial services, a lot of their fears around that would not materialize simply because it would be difficult to get those personnel in. The second point is really about what we've all been focused on this morning, which is taxes and stimulus. And in that scenario, with a Biden White House and a Republican Senate, investors should expect any stimulus to be smaller than the base case right now. And uh, for the tax increases that the former vice president has proposed to not come to pass. 
So aside from the taxes, there's also this regulatory overhang that was sort of uh, highlighted this morning with this headline that the antitrust suit against Google will go forward, a long-anticipated one. Isaac, how much political will is there among Democrats if there is a blue wave to engage in true regulatory scrutiny of big tech that could affect their earnings? I got to tell you, the big tech narrative reminds me of infrastructure in that everyone in D.C. agrees that something should be done. But once you start to drill down, there's very little agreement in what should actually be done. So in big tech, just look at the different issue sets. Are we focusing on content, competition, data privacy? There are numerous different avenues to follow. And then you've got to add on top, there are just too many cooks in the kitchen. Is it the DOJ, the FTC, the state AGs, Congress in a blue wave scenario? So, look, there will be continued headline pressure, but when you actually drill down and you use the benefit of history, whether it's Microsoft, the Bells, or IBM, you see that there really aren't that many tools at the moment to, quote, unquote, break up these companies. So the headlines will persist, but in terms of practical impact, I think it's very limited. And in the end, the market addresses the issue. We saw that with Microsoft. Democrats talking about antitrust, Republicans talking about censorship. Let me just talk about the Senate and the composition of it, Isaac. If it does turn Democrat, just how moderate will that Senate be? And how much of a radical progressive agenda, if it was to go through the House, could actually pass in a Democratic-led Senate? So this is something that, that I've been highlighting to clients. About 56 percent or so of Biden supporters say they support Biden because he's not Trump. And to me, that suggests that the Democratic coalition could have some fractures if they end up winning. And we will have a far more progressive House in terms of policy than we will have in the Senate. And this is important because there are going to be at least three, possibly even five, centrist red state Democrats in the Senate from states like Montana, West Virginia, Arizona. And I think that contingent will push back on the most aggressive and, and progressive uh, policies that come out of, uh, of the House. And so that's what informs some of my views well, when it comes I, to a blue wave in taxes. You mean, Isaac, I think I happen to think you're, you're absolutely dead on here about the power of these centrist Democrats greatly underrated. And it goes back to Hubert Humphrey and Scoop Jackson from another time and place. How does that set up for 2022? Because two, the race for 2022 begins that Wednesday in November, doesn't it? some ways, we're, we're gearing up for it right now. And so, look, I, I, to your point, it's not just going to be the ones that are there. It's also going to be the fact that their ranks will be bolstered by some of these uh, more purple states, whether that's North Carolina or South Carolina or Maine. So their ranks will grow. Furthermore, when we look out to 2022, there are going to be some open seat races in, again, purple states like Pennsylvania and like North Carolina. And I think that will inform Schumer's thinking in terms of policymaking and trying to tack more towards the center. Isaac, just quickly, in the time we have left, does the debate happen on Thursday, given the noise around it still? You assume it still happens? Look, I think we're going to have a debate. I think that the two-minute muting function will be interesting. But the remainder of those 15-minute segments beyond those two two-minute mute periods, 
it's still going to be the messy, convoluted, yeah. just deeply concerning mess that we saw the first time. So, yes, I think it happens. Yes, I think it'll be messy. And no, I don't think it's really going to impact the election because most voters have already made up their minds. And isn't that the point? Isaac Boltanski, Compass Point Research Managing Director for Policy Research. Isaac, great to catch up, sir. Right now with us, John Golub. And what's wonderful about John Golub is if you were to see his notes at Credit Suisse, there's great, great sector specificity. We haven't done that in a while with all the distractions that we have. Let's go there right now. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. What is the sector distinction right now, uh, John? What is the, the research topic of those fancy Excel spreadsheets you do? Well, I, if, if, I, if I kind of summarize it into four what I like to call super oh, sectors. It's radio. The companies, <laughs> the, companies the, big, the, the broadly defined tech universe, which would include you know, Google and Facebook, which are really officially part of the communication sector. But if, if you include all that together, the real key is that they are delivering better earnings in 2020 than they did in 2019, 75% or more of the time. And that is the number one driver stock. So when everybody is looking at the Fed and right. the, the election as a driver, look at which companies are totally untouched by this right. downturn, and those are the winners, and that's what you're seeing. Okay, John, I looked at Procter & Gamble today, 3% five-year dividend growth. That's terrible, folks. And they got a 27-26 multiple. How is that? Gosh, I mean, and, and I can't speak to Procter & Gamble's company, but the, real, but the real story here, Tom, is, is that the, the discount rate is really low. Or putting it all, put it alternatively, the, look at whether it's Procter & Gamble or any other companies in the consumer staple space, the, the yield that you're getting on those is so much higher than a treasury yield, which is as a yield under 80 basis points, that they're just begging to be bought. And I think that what's going to happen here is that the two categories, you talk about different sectors, the, the non-cyclical part of the market, which is like healthcare and staples, or the tech-related part of the market, are going to trade at really, really high multiples because of the interest rate in addition to the, their own business process. That's right where I wanted to go, Jonathan. How much does this entire call hinge on benchmark rates, 10-year Treasury yields, staying where they are going lower? Um, I, I don't, first of all, the, the 10-year Treasury yield I don't think is going to go lower. And in the near term, if it picks up, it'll be a sign of some economic health. But, but I think with interest rates this low, you're talking about P.E. multiples on the market that are going to probably average in the mid-20s for the next decade, not for the next six months. And, um, and I think that people aren't really, haven't really adjusted their thinking. Historically, a 15 multiple for, for, for a stock is normal, and now we're going to be trading at much, much higher levels for a persistent period of time. Okay, right now, 10-year Treasury yields under eight-tenths of a percentage point. I'm wondering at what point does the yield rise to a high enough level that it stymies this call? Um, you know, I, I, you would have to get interest rates back into the mid-ones, or, or you know, if, if you have a, an interest rate even below 2%, um, now, mind you, that sounds like an incredible number, but we started the year at 1.9, and um, we're so much far, you know, so far below that. But if you even got back towards where we were at the beginning of the year, it still supports super high multiples 
in um, in areas like staples and healthcare and tech related companies, and so I don't see a near term pickup in interest rates as a threat to valuations or the you know the sustainability of the returns you've had in these kind of stocks. What do you say to the idea that the consensus trade right now is the election will be just fine and you'll get a blue wave and there'll be a great fiscal support bill and everybody will be happy and hold hands and say kumbaya and the economy will get back on track and stocks will soar. That's the consensus right now. Do you buy it? I don't I don't not buy it. I do think that there's a, a near term risk that, that people are, are missing here. Um, if we're, we're not, it doesn't look like the chances are we're not going to get a stimulus bill which is going to support um, small businesses and um, people who are unemployed until after the uh, the new president is sworn in, and that means that people who are unemployed or have small businesses depend on these government checks are not going to see that until. February, maybe even March. If that happens, I just think that you're going to have a pickup in the number of individuals and small businesses that are, that are going to be declaring bankruptcy or not making loan payments. And I think that there's some near-term risk in the market. And I'll tell you that, that Trump is going to borrow money like crazy and stimulate. Biden is going to borrow money like crazy and stimulate. Um, so I don't think that the candidates are as big a difference um, as we think, yeah. what, what are the two things that matter? Making sure that we have current in the near that we get through this next four months. And the second thing is this pickup in COVID really could um, could derail things. But COVID and the stimulus check, the stimulus program in the next four months yeah. is far more important than the election. And John Gallup, I've got the chart up of SPX Standard Poor's 500, and the bottom line is since 2016, before the Trump election, but certainly ascribed to the Trump years as a linear function of a great bull market. There was a pause in the fourth quarter of 18. There was a pause in the shock of this natural disaster. But we're in trend. Are we still in a bull market? I think that we probably are. But I, but if you look, Tom, at what's in the market, and you're talking about you know the focus we have on, on sectors, the S&P is a living, breathing thing. It's not the same thing over time. Um, 40% of the S&P right now is tech-related. If you add healthcare as kind of intellectual property as well, more than half of the S&P is intellectual property companies. If well, should that be at- a surprise? They're, am I right that they are displaying the most percentage Persistent revenue growth and persistent cash flow. And and the highest margins and the lowest levels of debt and the highest return on equity. Now, if you compare that, though, Tom, and you talk about the market, but there's not one market. If you compare this to European stocks or global stocks outside of North America or small cap stocks or value stocks, you're not seeing something that looks at all like this. The the S&P or really, more, more, even more importantly, the growth stocks within the S&P don't look like the benchmark, but they are what's driving the stock market. And so you really have to find where in the market those opportunities, uh, those opportunities lie. And folks, to take it down on this day of the Google lawsuit, I'm going to sum up Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and the double alphabetes. 3, 5, 10, 16... 23% is those tech stocks above Berkshire Hathaway and the S&P 500. That's extraordinary concentration, John. How do you play that? You don't sell out of those. What do you do? You, you take fresh cash and position away from those? 
Well, well, Tommy, first you have to ask, why are they doing well? They're delivering much better, um, they're delivering better profits. And so, in, and while they're a little bit less than 23% of the market's earnings, um, they're really disproportionately, um, you know, strong in terms of earnings and profits and, and profit Agreed. markets and, and like. Yeah. Um, I mean, we looked, at, we did an interesting analysis, Tom. We looked at which characteristics are winning in the market. So is there something about these individual stocks or is it like, are they just in the right place? What is it? So, Okay, sales growth, number one. Number two is high profit margins. Number three is low debt. And if you look mm. at each of those five companies, they tick all three boxes. If you took the whole S&P 500 and say, show me companies that are in the top 10% on sales growth, right. high profit margins, and low debt, okay. they would all be doing it. So well. can you position Russell 2000? for those attributes and sift Russell 2000 for 42 John Golub stocks? Uh, you, you surely can. As a matter of fact, yesterday we took, in, in a universe that doesn't look as well, we did this for non-U.S. stocks yesterday. We published a list of 30 companies, and we said, I want to go and find global companies with the exact same characteristics that okay, I talked about. Give me one name. Five. I know you can't. It's only you and me uh, you know, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. Abramowitz, people, I don't know what people, If her. people email me, I will, I will go. If they, if they send me an email on Bloomberg, uh, I will so go and send them rich, a copy of never again. Uh, Okay, I'll send them know. a copy of the report. But, you know, the problem also, by the way, with the small cap universe, there's a, a huge number of companies that are not profitable or have really, really weak margins. So you, can you find those names? Yes. Yeah. But there's just, there's just yeah. far fewer of them. Lisa, jump in here, please. Well, there's a theory. I like that Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley, he's been bull, 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 bull. And now he's bearish. He actually sees the, the big potential for a 10% pullback in the near term. Long term, he remains the bull uh, that he has been. You buying that? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would. For, I mean, first of all, we have a 3,200 call between now and the end of the year um, because of some of the, these near-term risks that I was talking about um, around Absolutely. stimulus and COVID and the like. But if you said to me, am I really bullish looking between, you know, through the election towards the end of next year? Absolutely. So I don't know exactly the nuance of his call, but the way you've described it, I'm, yeah. on, the, I'm on the same page. John Gallup, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Love the sector work, the acuity there. Uh, really, really special. Joining us right now, I'm Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and really quite expert at the world dynamics, the global dynamics of this pandemic. I'm a, yesterday I witnessed, I got so upset with my, you know, faulty biological background, microbiology background, that I put out photos of Sabin and Salk and of people in those polio cans from the 1950s and the 1940s, is a president on the campaign trail once again belittled your world. How do we push back and say that science matters? I think we just have to keep telling people about what, how human life has improved because of science and scientists, because of work by Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, because of work of people like Anthony Fauci. And I think it's obvious to anybody that looks at the, the reason why we have lifespans of 70s and 80s and then looks back at the work that science and medicine has done with vaccination, with public health. I don't think that this is a disputable type of thing. And to hear the president call Dr. Fauci or allude to him as being, quote unquote, an idiot really just shows 
that he has complete envy for somebody like Dr. Fauci, who has real credentials and has a real track record and has expertise that he will never gain. And I think that's that, that's what we have to think about. This is very nihilistic to keep going after science and experts because it is science that will get us through this pandemic. And it has been the ignoring of science that has led to over 200,000 deaths in the United States. So this is really deplorable uh, from the president. When we distribute a vaccine and we know that the first one will not be as efficacious as the second, the third, the fourth tranche, we may need boosters like when we were kids, et cetera. What should be the approach to give confidence on a successful first vaccine? The approach is to make sure that this whole process has been insulated from political considerations, that this doesn't become hydroxychloroquine or this doesn't become convalescent plasma, that we know that the FDA is going through the exact measures that they would for any other vaccine. And it's going to be important also for professional societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Infectious Disease Society of America, as well as people like Dr. Fauci to really be behind this vaccine and tell the American people very transparently what the risks are, what the benefits are, so that they have confidence. Because if we don't get enough people vaccinated, we are still going to be dealing with hospitals getting patients that they can't handle and continue to have this kind of limbo of this pan of pandemic control. So we have to be very clear and do a lot of public health detailing to the American public. Because if you go back to 2009 and H1N1 during that pandemic, only about 23% of Americans got that vaccine. We can't have a failure like that. We need to get confidence in the public. And in order to do that, we've got to make sure that these steps have actually been fallen, fo followed. And I do think the pharmaceutical company CEOs, as well as Monsef Slui from Operation Warspeed, have, have increased my confidence that this will be something that doesn't get meddled with the way hydroxychloroquine did. Dr. Adalta, in the meantime, as we wait for a vaccine, any parent out there is juggling whether we're going back to remote school, whether their kids are going to see their friends, what is the appropriate level of social interaction? And this matters, frankly, especially as an increasing number of kids feel isolated and depressed, and this affects their social development. What is the appropriate level of contact at this point, taking into consideration these mental health issues at a time when a lot of science experts are saying, hey, all of these small gatherings, these, these groups of, of playdates, they're not acceptable. Is, this is something that's a very hard question to answer, and a lot of it has to do with your risk tolerance and who in the household has risk factors for severe disease. I do think that there is a real psychosocial toll that this pandemic has been playing on children who are unable to socialize, who are unable to have in-person learning, and we have to prioritize that. Thankfully, children still tend to be spared from the worst consequences of this disease. They're not likely to be hospitalized, not likely to die, and even the younger ones, less than sixth grade and below, are probably less likely to spread it. So I do think that children uh, can and socialize in small groups with, with the caveat that you're making sure that no one there is at least overtly sick and that you take notice of, of the fact that you're going to be at a little bit of a higher risk. But I do think in some situations, you have to look at what the value is being pursued and, and, my, and social interaction is a real value and look at the risk. And it's gonna be a little bit different for each person in each family, but I think that there are ways to do this safely. And I do think we have to prioritize getting this outbreak un, under control and having schools open in person, because if we can have fans and stadiums, uh, we need to be able to have children in schools. Doctor, when we talk about the economy and try and address one issue, often what happens is we cause problems elsewhere. And I appreciate before I ask this question how challenging it is to explore with me. But what are we learning about the medical issues we're causing elsewhere as we try and tackle this specific one? We definitely know that when hospitals 
were, were asked to stop with their quote-unquote elective procedures. And elective procedures is kind of a bad word because people think cosmetic, but elective means things like scheduled aortic valve surgery. And we know that there's an inc that, that all of those other medical conditions did have increased morbidity and mortality. We know vaccinations dropped uh, during the height of the economic shutdowns. We know that uh, cancer chemotherapies were delayed. We, we know that psychiatric care also uh, kind of went through the cracks, felt, everything fell through the cracks during that shutdown. So we have to balance, not, not just balance it, but realize that we have to think long-term. It's just so hard for policymakers in the middle of a crisis to think long-term, even though that's what they should have been doing, knowing that we can't trade short-term benefits for COVID against long-term uh, long uh, problems with cancer and other diseases. So I do think that this is something that people recognized, and that's why it's so important that we have hospital capacity and that we expand hospital capacity and make sure hospitals have enough resources, because if they can't do their ordinary care for heart disease, for cancer, for surgeries, for, for pediatric and psychiatric care, we're going to suffer long-term consequences. And I think that no one wants to make those same mistakes again. Amesha, I appreciate you exploring such a difficult issue. Doctor, thank you. Amesha Dowger there of Johns Hopkins. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.